I'd like to open your Bibles to Hebrews 11. We'll be beginning there this morning. I'm going to have uh, do something different this morning of having the text up on the screen as I read it. And, um, and then later we're going to go to Genesis again, like we've done the last couple weeks, and look at the story of the person we'll be talking about. The person this morning is Noah. And a lot of you are probably familiar with Noah. We're going to spend a little time talking about him. I think I've told this story before, but when we were in Wisconsin, and actually the church we attended was in Michigan, just over the border in the Upper Peninsula, I was teaching one Sunday afternoon there, and um, and I don't remember what the sermon was or anything, but Noah was part of it, and I uh, he wasn't the main focus of it. And I said to the people there that day, we're not going to go and look at the story of Noah. You know the story of Noah, so let's just focus in on this with that in the background. And a lady came up to me afterwards, and uh, she was a friend. She'd been there for a while, and she said, you know, you, you mentioned that everybody knows the story of Noah. I mean, to me, that's such an easy story that everybody knows it. And she said, I don't know who Noah is. I don't know his story. And that has never left me, obviously. And I don't want to assume um, that everybody knows everything that's in here. So we're going to look a little bit at Noah this morning, even though most of us are very familiar with him. But he is the character that the writer of Hebrews brings to our attention this morning, and we'll learn from his life, and we will also learn about Jesus. So let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 11, and we'll read down through verse 7. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Remember that phrase there, things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. As I mentioned previously, Noah is one of those iconic characters in the Bible. And whether or not a person was raised in a church environment, it seems that most know generally of Noah and the ark. I have a feeling that as we move forward in our culture and in our world, Noah and that story is going to be less and less known. The person is going to be less and less known. But for now, most generally know of Noah. 
And of course, most of those who do know of the story, whether they believe it or not, envision whimsical pictures of cute animals who went into the ark two by two. And I have an image for you to see this morning that kind of, in my mind, encapsulates how the story goes for most people. You will notice there are no humans in that picture. It's all animals. They're all happily smiling and they're all getting along wonderfully, except it appears for the orangutans because they're separated. Everybody else is together, but the orangutans, one's on the top. Maybe that's who's in charge of the whole boat. I don't know, and there's one hanging out the window. But there's pretty rainbows, there's happy smiling animals, and the waters are just beautiful. That's how most people see it. But the reality of the story of Noah and the ark is that it's a story that is much darker and far more serious than cute animals and rainbows on the walls of a child's room. I find it interesting that so many toys are made of Noah's story of the ark. And again, they're happy animals. Murals are made for rooms and paintings are done. For a while, our nursery back here, which is now, was our old nursery, which is now the teen room, used to have a big painting of Noah and the animals and, and a nice rainbow. But it's a very dark story. The story of Noah is one of faith in the midst of rampant wickedness. It's a story of faith and trust in the awful in God as the world experiences his awful judgment through decreation. The world that was without form and void and water covered the face of the earth and then became a place for living creatures where dry ground appeared and plants sprang up and a beautiful garden was made for two people to live in and to be fruitful and to multiply and to spread God's glory throughout the whole earth is now reduced back to a place covered with water. There is no dry ground left and the world is experiencing decreation. The story of Noah is one of faith in the face of massive death but also a story of redemption. And because of the vast difference between how many perceived the story of Noah and what really was, I'd like for us to go back to Genesis chapter 6 and read the story, a great portion of the story. So Genesis chapter 6, we're going to actually read all of chapter 6 and part of chapter 7 because that encapsulates or contains most of the story of the flood. So Genesis chapter 6, and it's going to be a long reading, so I'm going to ask you to try and stay focused. We're going to read down through verse 16 of chapter 7. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And I'm going to, I personally, just to put this out there for you, I personally think this is referring to the line of Seth and the line of Cain. 
that the daughters of man were from the line of Cain and the sons of God are from the line of Seth. It's debatable, but that's the view I take. And they took their wives, any they chose. So the idea here is there's this corrupting of the the godly line of Seth. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. I think that's a poor translation. Literally, it is, my spirit shall not contend with man forever. For he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown, or the men, the famous ones. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. That word regretted means that he was sorrowful. He was sad. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days 
I shall send I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of the birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. That's not a happy story. It's a very sad story. And Noah lived in arguably one of the worst times in human history. And we've just read how bad things were. Noah's world was completely and utterly corrupt. The word that's translated corrupt there, we think of corrupt and we hear, we think of corrupt politicians, people who take bribes and they're just bad guys, corrupt cops. But when, when Moses used that word, he's talking about rotten things, decaying things, spoiled things. He's thinking of meat that's just been left to sit out for weeks when it's covered with flies and maggots and smells. That's how Moses describes the world that, he, that Noah lived in. The culture around him, we're told a couple of times, was filled with violence. People loved violence. And it was a place where cruelty reigned and injustice was the norm. It was so bad that Moses says that all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In a sense, what Moses would be saying in our vernacular today is that the entire population of the world had become decaying, walking zombies. They were dead men walking with their flesh falling off of them in God's eyes. We're told that the world had become a place where the external actions of humans were wicked because their hearts, this is is an incredible statement, their hearts were filled continually with evil thoughts. They were a culture that was continually thinking of how they could be evil. And this was a society in which the human heart never desired good. 
And in the midst of this pervasive depravity lived this man named Noah. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Noah was the great-grandson of Enoch, who we talked about last week. And like Enoch, we're told Noah walked with God. Same heart. Moses describes Noah as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Everyone he knew was involved in the wickedness of the world. We know Methuselah died probably about five years before the ark was shut up and the floods came. Maybe Methuselah, and I would think he had been, would have been a good man. Lamech was still around, but he died again before the flood. By the time the flood came, it appears that any godly influences were gone, except for Noah. Peter, in his second letter, refers to Noah as a herald or preacher of righteousness, going around calling people to obedience to God. Noah was a unicorn in his time. There just weren't too many others like him, if any others. He was a man whose heart and life was completely countercultural whose being was consumed with the glory and greatness of God. And one day that God came to Noah with an awful message, telling Noah that he was determined to make an end of all flesh because the earth was filled with violence through the flesh that existed. And he tells Noah, I am going to destroy them with the earth. I've thought about that. If, that. if I was Noah, mixed emotions with that. There would have been a sense of the, the incredible loss of life, but there would have been a sense, I would imagine, of that's good. This is needed. But the magnitude of it would have been just tremendous because God's plan was to destroy every living thing on the face of the earth. Nothing left alive. Noah was then given instructions to build an ark, which was a type of boat in which God would save him and his family along with some of the animals. And for just a moment this morning, I'd like for you to try and put yourself in Noah's shoes as he received the news. Push away all of the rainbows and the silly images of happy animals and all the hopeful emotions This is a man who has spent his entire life seeking to persuade others to obey God. And now God has told him that it's all been fruitless. Everything you've given yourself to, the dreams that you had for change in people's lives and in the greater population of the world because he was consumed with that, it's never going to happen. And while Noah has learned that his wife and his sons and his daughters-in-law will be spared, he is also faced with the fact 
that the rest of his and their families will be destroyed. Brothers and sisters and cousins and grandparents are going to suffer an awful death. The wives of these men, their entire families are gone. Everything he has ever known will be gone in the awesome wrath of God's judgment. And I don't know about you, but for me that would have been incredibly discouraging news. But in spite of all of that, in spite of the weight of this announcement from God, you know, it's easy for us to read it and just not feel that weight. But Noah would have. And in that moment, Noah believed God by faith, belief. Noah in that moment believed God. And that's what we're told in Hebrews chapter 11. So I'd like for us to go back there. Obviously, there's much more to the story of Noah, but those are the things that I wanted us to see this morning from his story. The writer of Hebrews tells us, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. He believed that God would send this flood. Although he had never seen rain. He'd never seen rain. We're told in the beginning of Genesis that God would water the earth every night by a mist that would come up. There would never been any rain in their experience. And yet Noah, having never seen rain, believed God would send a flood. Greater than that, he believed that God's judgment was just, however awful it appeared. You know, it's, it's easy for us to watch the news and to see people rioting and burning buildings and see people shooting police and believe that that deserves judgment. It's harder for us to see people who are our friends, who are our neighbors that we like, who are our family members, and looking at them and agreeing with God and believing that they deserve judgment. But Noah believed that God's judgment was just. The writer of Hebrews tells us of his reverent fear, which in Greek actually means to perceive or receive a situation rightly. I don't know why they translate it that way here in Hebrews. It means that when God spoke to Noah, by faith, Noah believed God and perceived God's message rightly. He understood it and he agreed with God. And so what motivated him in his building of the ark 
was his understanding of who God is and why God would need to send judgment. So for about 80 to 90 years, Noah gave his life to building an ark and preaching repentance. One author says this, Noah took God at his word that what God was telling him was good and right and he received it as such. He did not build the ark out of terror, but from having received God's oracle as a truth to be believed. When it was all over, we're told here, his belief in who God is and his belief that God would keep his promises exposed and thus condemned the underbelief of his contemporaries. So it says here at the end, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith he obeyed God when all around the disbelief of the masses was proclaimed by their wickedness. Even greater was that because of faith, because of Noah's confident belief, God commended him like Abel and like Enoch as a righteous man. But before we take our little statue of Noah and put him up on the shelf in the hall of faith, as they like to say, let's hold back for a moment and remember that in spite of all of what we read here in Hebrews 11 and verse 7, remember that Noah was a flawed man. And remember that Noah, like his contemporaries, was a sinner. He was blameless in his actions, in his culture. And God called him a righteous man, but he didn't call him a righteous man because of his actions. He called him a righteous man because of his faith, his belief in who God is and what God promises. And the story of Noah does not have a happy ending. Again, most people only know about a boat and animals hanging out of it with a big rainbow in the background and everybody's happy. But the reality is the awful judgment of God and the reality is the awful sin of Noah. And the story does not have a happy ending. God did wipe away the corrupt masses and God did wash the cursed earth. But the reality is that the curse remained and corruption lurked in the heart of the surviving humans. And too soon, very soon, this pristine environment would be stained once again by sin. And it would be stained by the sin of Noah, the man who gets drunk. The man who gets so drunk, he ends up sprawled out naked in full view of others. That's not a little tipsy. That's not just a DUI. That is fall down flat out drunk as you can be. 
And once again, sin would spread from Noah to his son. And before long, humans are found building the Tower of Babel in rebellion against God. And what we learn is that Noah was not the rescuer. He was the rescued. And his actions would betray the sin of his heart. So let's just keep that little Noah trophy off the shelf and set it down. Because ultimately, the writer of Hebrews doesn't want us to become become enamored with Noah and be like Noah. He has something bigger for us. He wants us to remember that one day, another man appeared on the scene, and his name was Jesus. Noah points us to Jesus. Noah is a pivotal character in the Old Testament. When Moses writes the story of how everything came to be and the stories of the patriarchs, he has a direct link from Adam through Seth to Noah. The genealogy stops with Noah. Adam has a son named Seth, and in the line of Seth is this man named Noah. And from Noah, we have a direct link to Abraham, which is who the writer of Hebrews is going to go to next, Abraham. Through Noah, through that line of descendants, comes Abraham, who has a son. Well, he actually has two sons. And one is a godly line, and one is an ungodly line. And out of that ungodly line, out of that, actually not that line, through another line of Noah's son comes the people of Canaan. Noah didn't curse his son. Noah cursed his descendants from that son. And those people remain under that curse until God brings a group of people called the Israelites to destroy the land of Canaan, the descendants of Noah's son who were cursed. Noah becomes a very pivotal person in the future of humanity. But Noah is not the end of the story, nor is Abraham, because they point us forward to this man named Jesus. Like Noah, Jesus was also sent as a herald of righteousness. But he was different from any who had preceded him. He lived in his generation as a blameless man, like Noah. And he was a righteous man. But Jesus' righteousness was not one given to him by God. Jesus' righteousness was innate in him because he is God. Jesus, by faith, also obeyed God. But he was not like Noah because Jesus did not obey in part. Jesus obeyed fully. Jesus always obeyed his Father. There was never a moment with Jesus when his heart desired anything else. As I've said several times before, as you go through the Gospels, and particularly the Gospel of John, we're continually told that Jesus did all of his Father's will. His heart was tuned to obey. 
Jesus' culture was also corrupt, just like Noah's. One writer points out, and this is a longer statement, but he points out what, how Jesus viewed his peers. Jesus called them an evil and adulterous generation. He referred to them as this wicked generation. In a, this writer says, in a great passage dealing with what constitutes true impurity and true purity, Jesus made the startling statement that out of the heart proceeds murders, adulterers, adulteries, evil thoughts, and things of that kind. He spoke about Moses having to give special permissive commandments to the men because of their hardness of their hearts. And when the rich ruler approached him, saying, Good teacher, Jesus said to him, There is no one good but God. Jesus compared men, even the leaders of his country, to wicked servants in a vineyard. He exploded in condemnation of the scribes and the Pharisees who were considered to be among the best men, men who were in the upper ranges of virtue and in the upper classes of society. Jesus made a fundamental statement about man's depravity in John 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He saw in man an unwillingness to respond to grace. You will not come. You have not the love of God. You receive me not. You believe not. He said the world's works are evil and none of you keeps the law and you shall die in your sins. He tells them you are from beneath. Your father is the devil who is a murderer and a liar. He tells them that they are not of God, that they are not God's sheep. He says the one who hates him hates his father. That was the way Jesus spoke to the people of his time. And he brought to the fore their utter inability to please God. I wanted to read that the way it was written because he's so in such a well written way presents to us the people among whom Jesus lived and moved and preached to. So he lived in a time that was like Noah, um, with people who were like Noah's contemporary, but yet again, he was vastly different from Noah. Jesus brought life out of death. Jesus brought cleansing where there was abomination. Jesus did not sin, nor did he spread sin. Instead, through his sacrificial death, humanity is offered complete forgiveness and true holiness. Jesus is the rescuer. He's not the rescued. He is the rescuer, the one who reconciles sinners to God. Have you ever had a moment, something in your past that you've done or said that you wish you could take back? Obviously, we all do. We call them regrets. Noah had regrets. Jesus never experienced regret for anything he said or anything he did. Noah serves for us an example of how faith 
in the person and promises of God produces enduring obedience in the life of ordinary people. That's how Noah is presented to us. But we're wrong if we seek to be like Noah. As I've said with the rest, he testifies that we can live by faith. It is possible. But ultimately, Jesus is our example. We live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation like Jesus, we're told by the Apostle Paul. And he tells us in that culture to shine as light, living as people who do not grumble or are contentious. How you doing on that? We seem to live in a culture that is all about grumbling and contention. You can't read the news without the stories being about grumbling and contention. But we're called to shine as light and not be that kind of people. How can we do that? By faith? By believing that what happens in our lives is from our good Father who is using our circumstances to shape us into the image of Jesus. Faith drives us to live as sojourners and exiles, abstaining from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls. That's what Peter told us. Living by faith results in us keeping our conduct among the unsaved honorable so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of judgment. And that happens not by trying to be like Noah, but by accepting the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. And by God's gracious work in us, yielding to the Spirit and depending upon His power, choosing to live a life that is radically different, believing that God is who He says He is and that He will do what He has said He will do. We live in an unjust, violent world. When I was reading this story again of Noah and the statements of the violence of Noah's world, our world, our people, we as human beings have become obsessed with violence. Most of our movies that we enjoy and that are the big box office winners are all about violence death and chaos. The news is saturated with violence. And if they don't put that in the news, we don't watch the news anymore. We sit around and talk about how bad it is, but we feed it by wanting to see it and know about it. How many times have you come across a video that starts with warning, graphic images? Well, that's not going to be jelly beans that fell in the trash and you can't eat them now. It's about dead bodies. 
It's about torn up bodies. It's about things that we say trigger people. And we watch it because there is something in us that loves violence. We love to see people get their comeuppance because we think that that's just. But we don't want that to happen to us. We want peace and calm and everything a certain way while we feed on violence that surrounds us all around. I'm guilty of this. I remember when the United States bombed Iraq and whether you, this isn't a statement about whether that was a right or wrong war, it has nothing to do with that, but I remember the pleasure I got out of watching the bombs exploding in Baghdad that night. And I grieve it now. Because there were people who were blown to bits. And buildings were destroyed. And I cannot understand how I found pleasure in that. Except that I think I don't deserve that. And they do. We have become touched by the violence in our world and we are surrounded by those who have no regard for the things of God. Yet we're called to be like Jesus. We're called to be like Jesus while we still struggle with the sin that's present in our beings. We're called to be like Jesus because we believe that there is a judgment coming and that judgment will be swift and that judgment will be terrible. No, God's never going to send a flood again. He put the bow in the sky to remind us that he will never destroy the earth by a flood again. But oh, by the way, he is going to destroy the earth with fire. And it appears that it won't just be the waters over the face of the earth and then receding. It will be a fire that completely consumes the earth and consumes the present creation. And every single person who has never trusted in the blood of Jesus for forgiveness with God will be consumed in that fire and will spend eternity in hell. We're to be heralds of righteousness because we believe that to be true. Things unseen, but that God has promised. But it won't work if we're just looking to Noah. We have to look beyond Noah to Jesus and fix our eyes on him The Christian life, I'm going to keep saying this until I can't preach anymore. The Christian life is not one of rule keeping. The Christian life is not simply a life of denying self things. It is not enough to say, I'm not going to lie anymore. Because in doing so, you're lying. What we must do is begin to orient our lives towards Jesus who only spoke the truth. 
and to say, I want by God's power and his gracious work into me, in me to be a person who speaks truth. And when you lie, you say, God, I have lied again. Help me to become a person who speaks truth. What you focus on is what you will become. Whatever the sin problem is, it is not enough to build barriers. It is not enough to say, I will not. Because the reality is, you'll kick those barriers down and you will. Until we learn that you want to be like Jesus and focus on him by faith. And make him the object of your desires. That I want to be like him. It's not bad to have barriers. It's not bad to make commitments, but our focus has to be forward, pursuing Jesus and desiring in obedience to be like him. When we do that, we will by faith endure faithfully in this life as we look to the promised joys before us. So I would encourage you to live by faith believing in the person and promises of God. Let's pray. Father, you are all we have and you are all we need. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. And also to show us what it likes, what it is like and how we are to live as one of your children. Look at all of our efforts to be like Jesus are for nothing if it's done in our own power. Because in us on our own, we do not have what is needed but you have given us the Holy Spirit. You have united us with Jesus. And the power with which you raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is at work in us to make us like him. Grow in us a love for you and a love for righteousness and a love for Jesus and a love for the Holy Spirit's work in us. And cause us to have a consuming desire to be like him. We love you. We praise you in your son's name. Amen.